This is Keep Up. I'm your host, Cynthia Dill. With me in the studio today is Portland Mayor Ethan Strimling. Welcome, Mayor Strimling. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to see you. Haven't seen you in a while. Yes, it's very nice to have you in the studio. I appreciate it. Um, Yesterday was Veterans Day, and of course we're recognizing it today. So I thought I'd just begin our conversation asking you, are you proud to be an American? I am. Uh, Yesterday, you know, uh, Veterans Day is always... um, you know, it's one of those days I, I try to sort of spend my time all weekend uh, focusing on veterans and di- going to different communities and trying to reach out to different folks to let them know what sort of how much I appreciate what they're doing. Um, I told the story actually yesterday, a couple of times this weekend. Um, you know, my generation, which, uh, you know, we're similar age, I think I may be a little bit older than you, but um, our generation, we kind of grew up in this generation that. I think held veterans a little bit at arm's length, maybe a little bit of disdain. We came out of the Vietnam War and there was this real tension in this country about uh, how we saw veterans and how they participated in that war. And although I don't think I ever really understood my own feelings around that or understood my own level of sort of holding people um, at arm's length, uh, I started to really realize it the first time when Phil Harriman and I, you know Phil, we used to do our um, show together, he, we were at an event, and he said in the middle of the event, you know, I want to tell everybody my greatest regret in life. And I sort of turned, and I was like, hmm, what's this about? And he said, you know, my greatest regret is that I never served in the military. And it was an, an, a way to frame it for me that was very different than I had sort of grown up as to what participation in the military was. And I'm very supportive of, you know, Veterans for Peace. I've been opposed to the Vietnam War. I opposed both Iraq wars. Um, I I am absolutely somebody who believes that, you know, U.S. intervention in a lot of countries has been uh, crossed a line that it shouldn't have crossed. Um, But it was good for me to hear him talk about the importance of recognizing those people who make the choice or didn't make the choice to serve. And so I really like to spend the weekend prior, um, you know, the weekend of Veterans Day, the weekend of Memorial Day, spending time with veterans and hearing their stories. So... um, it's great. Well, I saw that um, you were busy uh, in marching in the parade yesterday and I celebrating was. the holiday, and um, and that's great. I think um, a lot of people's um, appreciation of veterans has um, been raised as well as um, altered, I think, with the ongoing wars. It's really mm-hmm. taken a toll on families and continues to take a toll, and people recognizing the sacrifice that veterans make. So thank you for those comments. Um, and thank you Can for I also— add one piece of that, yes, too? Not, not only people recognizing that, but one of the things that um, I learned this weekend that I then talked about again is recognizing still how much more we have to do to take care of our veterans and how, how much they struggle in terms of trying to reconnect in a community. Um, Joe Regan, who's the, run of Easter's, the head of Easter Seals, he talked about how, um, how many veterans commit suicide. And he said, of the veterans who commit suicide, the statistics show right now three out of four never ask for help. And how difficult it is for so many of us to ask for help, no matter who we are, but veterans in particular. And so trying to talk about that this weekend, a lot about how much more work we have to do to try to help veterans to deal with the struggles that they have from the wars that you were just referencing. Well, again, thank you. Um, thank you for those words in support of our veterans. Um, and and. I wanted to talk to you also uh, because 
We just had a huge election, mm. and Democrats now are going to take the Blaine House in Maine and the House and Senate um, in Maine, and of course at the national level, the Democrats will have the majority in the House of Representatives. And I think it's interesting that you were very involved in politics. You ran for several uh, offices, served in the state Senate for three terms, mm-hmm. um, and now, of course, you're the mayor. But before you became the mayor, you were uh, a media personality and um, campaigned quite, I think, uh, vigorously for the mayoral position, mm-hmm. building a lot of support uh, around the community, on the airwaves. You had a column. And then when you were elected mayor, it seemed like there was a, a transition that, that was challenging. Mm. And so I thought maybe listeners would be interested to hear your perspective now that Democrats have to make a similar transition from campaigning uh, really passionately. I mean, Democrats mm. have been fired up with the election of Trump and all the shenanigans around the 2016 election, the LePage administration on its way out at last for, mm. from a lot of people's perspective. So what do you think the challenges for Democrats making the transition, and what have you learned from your own experience that that may provide some insight for people who are wondering what's what's going to happen? Um, it's a great question. I, you know, it's governing versus campaigning are very different, as you know as well, and you always have to be careful that those two um, can't be too far disconnected in terms of your values, but you have to recognize you have different different paths. So. Uh, Janet Mills, while she's a Democrat, um, she is not the governor of Democrats, and we Democrats have to recognize that. She's the governor of everybody in the state of Maine. That was certainly the same when I became mayor. You know, I got elected mayor with 51% of the vote. Now, in a three-way race, that's great. 51%, you're very proud. You got more than 50%, didn't even need ranked choice voting. But you also have to recognize that means 49% of the people didn't put a mark next to my name first. And you, when you get in there, have to recognize you cannot simply serve those 51%. Now, that 51% is going to get angry. And certainly, I had to deal with some of that confrontation internally as to how you balance that. But I think the very good news for Janet uh, is that she's been in government for quite a while. This is not going to be she's going to walk in there and have to figure out how to submit legislation, that she's going to have to figure out what the relationship is between her office and a legislator. She's been in every piece of government, from constitutional officer to legislative. Obviously, she's a lawyer, so she understands the judicial branch, I think, better than many. And now, of course, she's in the executive branch. So I think it's going to be smoother that way. Do you think one of your challenges was that you, even though you had served in state government, you had been a state senator, as opposed to when you became mayor, you hadn't served at the city council. Do you think if you had served on the city council, your transition to mayor would have been easier? Or was it a personality um, conflict that that caused the sparks during your first year. Um, I, yes, certainly. I think if I had been there, but I think you know, both Mike Brennan, my predecessor, and I, we both uh, did, had never served on the council, and clearly the public wanted somebody from the outside in both of those races. They were looking for, we want somebody who's going to come in who hasn't necessarily been part of that system because when we changed our electoral system in two thousand and ten. It had been a hundred years of one way. So I don't see these um, clashes that happen to both Mike and to me as anything more than the growing pains of us really moving towards this democracy that people have asked us to create, which is having an elected mayor who can really be their voice in City Hall, trying to make sure that 
uh, we're shifting away from kind of the the way that it was done before a little more um, a little less a little more direct democracy so those are real growing pains I think Mike went through them I'm going I went through them I'm sure there'll be more bumps everybody who gets into their position any leader uh, mayor governor president of the United States of course there's going to be these clashes that occur but I do think for Janet I think there'll be clashes, but one of the things I'm really pleased about, which is part of what I saw when I was there, is that we have unified government again. And I think that's a good thing, right? That's gonna give us a chance to say, Janet's gonna be able to put her agenda forward and say, you know what, I've got Democrats in both bodies. It's gonna give me a chance to get some stuff done, just like with Barack Obama, right? When he came in, he had both bodies right there with him. When Governor Baldacci came in, he had both bodies right there with him. We were able to maintain it for his entire term. That doesn't always happen, uh, for sure. Unfortunately, there uh, was a recession. <laughs> unfortunately, there was a recession. There were lots of reasons that things occurred. Yeah. Governor LePage came in. He had unified government when he started and uh, was moving forward that. He lost it pretty quickly. Uh, we'll see whether Janet is able to maintain that in the legislature as well. Now, you also made the transition, as I mentioned earlier, from being a media personality. You had a, a, a radio show that was very popular, wrote a column, um, appeared mm -hmm. on television with Phil Harriman, as you just mentioned. Now you are the subject or object of media attention. And how does it feel to be on the other side? All these people in the media are awful. They're just, uh, they have no understanding of what it means. Um, you know, it gives me actually a real appreciation, and I don't, uh, I, I think that there's a difference between what I was doing around political commentary, and, and I try to, you know, as you know, there's some level of it in which uh, you are certainly trying to elevate the discourse. You certainly are. You also have to be entertaining. You have to be interesting. You have to try to find a way to get people to be engaged, to really build that conversation. Um, so I have a lot of respect for that piece, and, and I have found actually, you know, I am, I, I would think that most um, reporters that you talk to would say that I am um, very accessible, and I think that's partly because of my background. It's also my belief that government should be transparent, so uh, it's very rare that I don't get back to somebody who calls me as soon as I can. It's pretty rare I don't even just pick up the phone if they call because I feel like that conversation and you build a respect with reporters that way, you know, when reporters are not respectful of that boundary, you, you know, sometimes you gotta push back, but I believe that we in elected office have an obligation to be as transparent as we possibly can. And so uh, I'm, I'm as accessible as I can be. And I think that's partly because of my background. Do you th feel that you've been treated fairly by the media? Um, it's too blanket of a statement to say that. I mean, it's, of course, I think there are some times when I think articles are very fair, and there's some times when I think that people completely missed it, and I think that's overall sort of what anybody feels. Uh, I don't think, I, I certainly don't have the animosity the way Paul LePage had the animosity towards the media, so I feel like in general, um, yeah, they do a pretty good job. They kind of get it. Sometimes I want them to go a little bit deeper and try to understand things, and I'm not always sure that they get the perspective that I'm trying to get across or the angle, but uh, for the most part, but you know, it really depends. You'd, you'd have to, there's articles that have come out where I've said, boy, they just totally missed the boat on that one. And, um, and you know, the good part is when that happens, I usually call the reporter directly. I don't need to have a public conversation about it. I'll call the reporter and say, hey, I feel like you missed it on this one and we'll have a good conversation about it. Are you concerned with the media consolidation that's taking place in Maine? And by that, I mean Reed Brower's kind of accumulation of several of almost all of the newspapers. Is that a concern of yours? Um, 
it, it's only in the sort of theoretical or philosophical. I, I haven't seen anything about it at the moment that's made me uncomfortable, but it's it's kind of out of my world. Uh, it's not a, you know, I would think that would be something more at a statewide level. So, uh, but am I concerned in a broader sense about whether or not um, media consolidation, uh, you know, whether media should be kept whether there should be more diversity in media, absolutely, I believe there should be more. But I haven't seen any problems yet with what's occurred, but we'll see. Now, from the perspective of, of a journalist, yeah. putting that hat on for a second, do you believe at the national level that the press corps should stop attending the uh, press conferences, the White House press conferences, as some are suggesting? There's a debate going on uh, nationally about whether or not you know uh, reporters covering Trump who has of course identified the media as the enemy of the people and constantly makes derogatory statements about the media in your view should a reporter continue to cover President Trump or should he or she not give the president the attention well whether they give the president attention or not that is something I hope that they base that decision on whether the president uh, is saying something that's newsworthy, that's a different decision. But do I think that the press corps should still go to the White House and attend press press briefing? Of course. I mean, access is important. You should be in that room any time you can. Now, if that's the only way that you are getting news, then you're a terrible news outlet, right? You have to be getting news. You know, I do think that under the Trump administration, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, they've actually been doing some really good reporting. They, they seem to have really injected some level of investigation into their reporting um, that I haven't seen in a while. And I think that's great. And we're seeing some very good. But if all you do is go to press briefings, you're not getting any, you know, you're getting very little. But not going to press briefings, I don't know what that does for anybody. It's it, I don't think it helps or hurts. I mean, I don't think it hurts. Speaking of the Wall Street Journal, in today's Wall Street Journal, there's an op-ed uh, penned suggesting that Hillary Clinton is going to run again for office. I saw that headline. I have not. I didn't get to read it. Well, it it's, uh, it's by Mark Penn and Andrew Stein, and it, make, it basically just says um, that Mrs. Clinton is going to reinvent herself as a liberal firebrand and capture the nomination. And, and I guess my question uh, for you is, should Hillary run? Uh, look, I, I want progressives to run, so I would love to have a progressive. If if um, Hillary Clinton can be our best progressive who can get in there and actually try to change the system, and she's the nominee, I'd support her for sure. Uh, it's not, I haven't really looked at the president. There's a lot of good people out there. I love Camilla Harris. I love Cory Booker. I love a lot of these folks. Uh, I like Joe Biden. You know, I mean, I think we've got a lot of good people out there. I, I don't ever discourage somebody to run or incur it. That's, that's the choice that they make because democracy means we decide whether that person gets the nomination. They don't get to decide it. So if Hillary wants to run, then Hillary's going to run. I don't, I don't have a feeling about that one way or the other. I, I want to win, and I, I, I'm one of these people that wants to win with strong progressive values in 2020, and I think we can. Okay, so let's talk about that word progressive. What yeah. in your mind does that mean? Um, for me, a, a progressive agenda is really trying to understand and confront income inequality within our economy. That understanding, you know, perhaps more broad than liberal or maybe a little different than liberal, which is a fine word as well. I see progressive as really recognizing sort of the economic undercurrents that are creating this economic divide, splitting. We see it here in Portland. It's one of the things that I've tried to confront uh, the, most, the most vociferously in my first three years. 
That's us not wanting to become Boston, right? I, I don't want to become a city where you either have to be uber wealthy to live here or you're incredibly poor and looking for social services and there's no sort of middle class. There's no of this economic, you know, we don't have any stratum there in the middle and that makes me very concerned and I think progressives are really trying to close that gap and look at policies um, that really came out of, I think, liberal movements for sure, but trying to find ways that you can really rebuild our economy so that it, it provides the relief that's targeted to those who need it the most. It builds infrastructure that allows middle class to really survive and thrive and also puts a little extra wind in people's sails as they're trying to, you know, make it through the day. So for me, uh, you know, progressive, I'm a hard-charging progressive mayor, right? I got no qualms about it. Well, give it's, me an example of um, uh, like one or two policies in your view that are progressive policies that you are championing to address the income inequality that you've described. Sure. For me, um, there's a number of areas that I've looked at it. But for instance, right now, trying to make sure that um, every worker in the city of Portland gets earned sick time, right? I got 20,000 workers in the city right now who do not get a single day off that's paid if they're sick. They can't take their kid to the doctor, right? So they don't get sick time. So that's a, that's a kind of policy that in, injects into our economy more equality. Okay, Poverty. so let me ask you this. Is yeah. earned sick time now just a new way of saying paid sick leave? So yes. in other words, Paid okay. Is fine. Yeah. Okay, so Sometimes it's a, I get, I, yeah. I just wasn't sure if it yeah. was if it was a different policy. Okay, yeah. so paid. paid sick leave. Yes. Um, the reason that I say earned is um, because I because it's important. There's misnomers that the Chamber of Commerce likes to throw out there that oh somebody just gets all this time for not. Now I'd actually love that, but that's not what we're asking for. What we're saying is you earn your sick time just like you earn your vacation time, just like you earn any other uh, benefit that you receive. Your paid time. If I work thirty hours, I get one hour of sick time. So paid sick time, a very important policy that we're trying to get in place right now. Um, two big policies that, of course, we did get in place, rebuilding our elementary schools, bonding to borrow to rebuild four elementary schools. You know, I think there is nothing that's going to strengthen our economy more than having strong elementary schools, which families say, I want to live in the city of Portland, um, so I want to put my kid there, but also that graduates kids who are stronger so that they can work in the, so they can be in the workforce. And okay, then, let me just interrupt, yeah. though, because I think this is somewhat interesting. Now, when you were a candidate running for mayor, you had the endorsement, I believe, of the Chamber of mm -hmm. Commerce. And now the, mm -hmm. princi you know, the principal policies that you've just identified are policies that the Chamber opposes. Mm -hmm. So is that because they just didn't know you when you were running or that you've changed or that uh, – what, what happened? Uh, well, you'd have to ask them. I'm not. I can't speak for what they felt. Um, I've. You've known me for a long time. I've always been a strong progressive. Those policies. Um, I, you know, you're right. It's. I, I'm saddened that the Chamber of Commerce did not get behind the four school bond. It saddens me that the Chamber of Commerce doesn't recognize that workers in the city should not have to lose a day's pay simply because they want to take their kid to the doctor because they have to take their kid to the doctor. The Chamber of Commerce in the city of Portland should be more um, more progressive than that. They should be more humane than that. You know, we're trying to build affordable housing in this town. We're trying to inject $7 million into our housing trust, which would allow us to build upwards of 1,000 units of housing in the city. Uh, right now, Portland Housing Authority has a waiting list of 1,100 families, right? That's not 1,100 people, that's 1,100 families. I could build 1,000 units today, and I still would not retire that list. That's the kind of housing crisis we have. So trying to inject $7 million into our housing trust 
would allow us to begin to try to put the, that piece in place. I, I wish that the Chamber of Commerce would get on board with that as well, that they're talking about wanting to build affordable housing, but they're not really helping us do it. Do you think that uh, having a Democratic majority now in the state legislature as well as a Democratic governor might influence the chamber at all? Uh, do you think that, for instance, they're going to stick their finger in the wind and dis discover that the wind, you know, might be blowing in another direction? Or, or what else can, what else can you do to uh, encourage the business community to make changes? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope they do. I, I don't know. I hope they do. I think that there's a lot of ways we can work together. You know, we've, I, I certainly, you know, in the beginning, the relationship with the chamber was, you know, was pretty reasonable. They seemed to really want to come to the table. When I first proposed during sick time, they didn't have any issues. They changed leadership, and then it became a very partisan issue. But, you know, look, the stuff that we've been accomplishing, property tax relief for low-income seniors, you know, we remember the program up in the state called the Circuit Breaker Program. A lot of people talk about property taxes are too high, and so they want to bring down the entire property tax rate. Well, a more progressive way to do that is to get the targeted relief to the people who need it most, which is seniors who are on fixed income. So now we have a program in place that provides a thousand, up to $1,000 of property tax relief almost for any, um, um, for any fixed income senior if their property taxes are a higher percentage of their income. That's real relief that's going to help families stay in their homes and is going to help our economy. That's the kind of stuff that we've been getting done all the time. Another big one, we're trying to make sure any public money that's spent, that the construction company has to pay a reasonable wage to those workers, something what's called fair contracting, responsible contracting. Provide health care to your workers, provide workers' comp to your workers, make sure they have safety training, and pay them a good wage. Now, when you say we... Say public money, we want it. When you say we, uh, do you feel like you have um, a coalition behind you mm -hmm. on some of these progressive policies? Are there other city councilors who are um, embracing these ideas and, sure. and that they have a likelihood of being successful? Um, I don't ever count the votes until you have the votes, so I don't know whether um, we're, when we get there, when push comes to shove, when we have the final vote, what the um, ordinance will look like. But there's no doubt there's a very broad coalition within the people of Portland, right? Remember, that's part of what's happened with creating an elected mayor, starting to bring different voices into City Hall. So on all of these issues, on earned sick time, a very broad coalition. Main, um, uh, Eliza Townsend is helping out with that. Um, the Women's Lobby, uh, Southern Maine Workers Center, they've both been taking a real lead. I mean, People's Alliance has been helping out a little bit. Progressive Portland's been helping out a little bit. When we did the four school bond, there was this whole organization called Protect Our Neighborhood Schools. They were really kind of building the grassroots on the responsible contracting. A lot of working class folks are getting behind that. Folks in the immigrant community are getting behind it because we're trying to bring new people into jobs. There's tremendous, tremendous uh, support among the people for these policies, and I think that's what gives them the strength. You know, it took us 20 years to get the four school bond passed. It was not until we had an elected mayor who made this the top priority that we were actually finally able to get it, get it over the hoop. We had all this energy and it kind of built up and we finally got it across the finish line. Same thing with even just property tax release for seniors. The city of Portland could have done that 10 years ago, but we never did until we really started focusing on that economic inequality. We're trying to achieve universal pre-K now. It's a priority I made a couple years ago in my state of the city address. Javier Botana is doing a great job as the superintendent of our schools and he's been really moving this along methodically. He actually came up to me at the beginning, you know, I can be a little impatient. And he was like, look, 
I could get you a mediocre universal pre-K right now if that's what you want, but I assume you don't want mediocre universal pre-K. You want excellent universal pre-K. So give me a little bit of time, and he's been pulling that together, and um, I'm very hopeful that we'll get that achieved. I think universal pre-K is a wonderful idea. When I read the article in today's Portland Press-Herald by Randy Billings, it struck me as um, a very expensive price tag. It's, if I read it correctly, it was like 140 kids, and it was going to cost $30 million dollars. That just seems outrageously expensive. I, I could be wrong about that. But my question for you is, getting back to this group, Progressive Portland. Can I, do can you I just address that? I, I don't remember that from the article, but just so I can put it out there. Um, creating universal pre-K, the 140 slots that they're talking about is not 30 minutes, a couple million dollars okay. to get there. So okay. I want to make sure that's, okay. that then I'm almost positive. I mean, we can go back and check that article, but I'm, I'm not sure what that was. So. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll make sure that I, I have the correct and information. And well worth the investment. Yes, so. it's, a, it's an investment that will pay off. Do you feel that the group Progressive Portland was unfairly demonized? Well, I think like anything, uh, certainly there were times that they were for sure. I mean, look, the, they have been, they were instrumental in us getting the four school bond passed. They've been a very important progressive force. I think people really don't like kind of having, um, have the, insiders don't like this outside pressure. And when there's a new outside pressure group that comes in, there's this big reaction to it. And one of the things that I said is, look, again, progressive Portland's coming in and all of a sudden people are freaking out about it. But what about all the pressure that's been going on every day from groups like the Chamber of Commerce or you know, groups that are trying to block us from basic protections for tenants in the city, right? They're doing this every day and somehow they're not getting headlines. So, but that doesn't mean that any group, you know, any group makes mistakes and does good things and uh, some things that they uh, wish they hadn't done. But um, absolutely, I think uh, they've done, they've been a very important part. I mean, Progressive Portland, Protect Our Neighborhood Schools, Maine People's Alliance, Democratic Socialists, the Portland Democratic Party are all really, I think, very important parts of the progressive movement of trying to create a city that's much more equitable, that's really fighting for our middle class and our working class. Uh, why do you think that half of white women vote for Donald Trump and Republicans? Do you have any insight about that? In the 2016 election, the, the number that's floating around is like 53% of white women voted for Trump. And just in the recent election, that they're still breaking down the numbers, but exit polls show that just about ha half of white women supported Republicans. Do you have any insight about that, or do you have any I ideas? Don't. I, I don't. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I try not to speak for groups who uh, I don't represent, either ideologically or by gender or uh, by race. I don't. I, I do think that our country is, you know, very divided. Our country is very scared. Our country has a lot of anger on both sides about the future and about the fact that they feel like their kids are not going to have a better life than they have, that they are not having a better life than their parents had. It's kind of getting this generational problem. And I imagine that goes all the way across the board. Um, I think Democrats, what I can speak to is I think we, we have to stand for something and we have to be very strong about that. I think that's what um, people are looking for. That's what energizes folks right now. And I think, you know, 89 Democrats in the state house, 21 Democrats in the main Senate. Uh, we want a lot of, a lot of good folks who were standing up for strong values in order to get that far. And there were people we thought we weren't going to get because maybe they were too, too far to the left. And I think that that myth has been thrown out. Do you think that having Governor Mills in the Blaine House is going to make your job as the mayor of Portland easier or more difficult? Well, I hope, um, I mean, it's not her job to make my job easier. 
but I do think it will become easier for us to serve some of the people that we've been trying to serve. And I do think that um, Governor Mills understands the importance of Portland's economy to the rest of the state. Um, but, you know, as we were talking about it before the election and looking at, you know, a number of the changes that happened with just simple funding that allowed us to, you know, not have to transfer it onto the property tax, uh, those were rules changes that were, or, or just interpretations that Governor LePage, DHS, Mary Mayhew were making behind, behind the scenes and saying, yeah, we don't think the rule reads like that anymore. And so Governor Mills can go in and make some of those changes pretty quickly, and we think that'll be a big help. Just simple stuff around how you fund homeless. You know, we used to get 90% reimbursement. We now get 70%. That's created a big gap. It's made it harder for us to provide services for people. Our homeless shelters are packed, as we know. We've got to figure out how to bring the population down. I think that's through building more housing. That's ultimately what's going to get our population down. But we also have to find a more humane way to house people because the way we do it right now is it simply, it's simply cannot continue. Do you think your job would be easier if there was more balance in the politics of Portland? In other words, if there was a stronger Republican presence to have a, 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 maybe a, a, a different type of debate? Or are you... Um, no, who, who, I mean, are the, who are the Republican leaders that we should be looking for now to, to, try, to try to work with Democrats to address some of the concerns that you've raised around housing and immigration and income mm -hmm. inequality? Well, at the, I mean, remember, at the local level, we're not partisan in the sense. We're all Democrats, actually, on the council right now. So there's no, that, that partisan divide doesn't this exist. But there is an ideological spectrum that we have, which is good. And I encourage everybody to work across the aisle as much go and try to find the person you disagree with the most and try to find something that you can agree on because and, and when you build compromise the key is don't cut the baby in half that is not good compromise right we know what that results in building good compromise is saying okay Cynthia what are you looking for what what is the policy you want and my trying to hear that and then my saying to you this is the policy I want and if those policies aren't diametrically opposed then finding a way to have them both, right? Because that's where I think you can build compromise. There are some places where they're just diamet diametrically opposed. But if you look at tax policy or something, you can sort of find a way that says, okay, I don't really agree with you that you know what you're going to do there with tax policy is going to create jobs. I think that's baloney, but that's kind of what you believe. The tax policy I want to do over here is going to create a more progressive taxation system. That's what I believe. So we find a way to put those two things together. Um, a great example of that at locally was the four-school bond. You know, there were people who wanted uh, to have a two-school bond, and there were people who wanted to have a four-school bond. And, right, what's the compromise when you first hear that? Well, let's do a three-school bond. <laughs> but, of course, that means one school gets left out. So what Councilor Mavidonis and I were able to put together through some pretty good conversations was, let's put them both out. Let's find a way legally to put both questions out so we both get what we want, which is we want the people to have a choice. And I felt confident that if they had the choice, they would go with four. He felt confident they had the choice, they'd go with two. We sent those two out. Four is the one that ended up winning, but it, I think both of us feel very good that that compromise was what needed to happen. That's better compromise than cutting the baby in half. So you are thinking about running again to be the mayor of Portland. So yeah. in my mind, that suggests, A, that you think the model change in governance around the charter and the new mayor position is good or at least mm. worthy of your continued um, you know attention and and um, and B you have work that's left undone yeah 
Do you think that the, mo the model that Portland has adopted now in its third iteration of having this mayor uh, mm. position is, is good for the people of Portland? Um, I think we can make it there. I think we can get there. I think it's important that we have some consistency. One of the things I've realized in the mayor's office in terms of trying to drive this po the policy that we're trying to achieve, that's very important. Having another term, that, that's what I'm really looking at in terms of is that, is that second term for me, let's say, um, uh, is that going to help us to keep moving this agenda forward, right? That's what I'm going to be looking at. And there is a lot of work that we still have to do. As I said, you know, trying to get the responsible contracting, trying to get $10 million in our housing trust, earned sick time. These are things that I'm hoping that we can get done um, even before uh, the next election occurs. Hopefully we can get those in place. But income inequality in the city is still growing. And homelessness is still growing. And our housing crisis is still, unfortunately, something that we have, uh, if there's any piece that I would say I have not done as good of a job as I would have liked to have done, it's really around housing. I have not been able to convince the council to take some much more dramatic steps than, than what we have taken so far. Uh, but as I look at all the pieces we have to do, uh, I, I want to I, I make sure first, uh, is, is, is there that work that I see we can get done and is, is that additional term going to allow me the best path to be able to do that work? Education is really key for us as well. We haven't talked about it a lot. We had a we had a, an epic um, debate last year about our school funding, and on, well, on the fortunate side, we got the largest increase in our schools in, in by dollar amount in decades, and one of the largest percentage increases in in over a decade. But even within that debate, we were having a conversation about what to cut, and unfortunately, the council on a seven to two vote cut $1.2 million from our schools, reduced the number of days that our kids are in class, got rid of middle school electives uh, in, our, in our middle schools, um, eliminated elementary school teachers. That was a step backwards that we did not need to take. That was unfortunate. So I, part of the work is making sure that our schools get the funding. I've had people say to me, why do you fight so hard for education? You're, you're, you're on the council, you're not on the school board. And that's one of the big differences being the mayor. I, I say I'm the mayor of everybody, and I'm the mayor of our schools, and I'm the mayor of our public works, and I'm the mayor of DHS, and I'm the mayor of every business, and I'm the mayor of every family. My job is to make sure we have what's best for us going forward, and if we don't have the best schools in the state, we're not going to be as good as we can be. Mayor Strimling, it's been a pleasure talking with you this afternoon. If listeners want to speak with you directly or reach out and communicate more about these issues, how, how do they do that? Um, City Hall is the best way to reach me, 874-8941, 874-8941. They can call my office or they can email me, eStrimling, that's the easy part, at portlandmaine.gov, eStrimling at portlandmaine.gov. Email me there, call me there anytime. I also do what's called sidewalk office hours, strimling on the streets. I'm all around the city. I put a little sandwich board, a little table out on the sidewalk. People can come up to me all the time. We publish that schedule online. They can find it. Ethan Strimling, thank you very much. Thanks.